Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You buy long-term securities, you drive up their price, you drive down their yield. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation imposes significant hardship. And what I want to do is different. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Joseph Schumpeter, that's the next economist that we are looking at in the Debunking Economics Podcast. One of those economists who has influenced Steve Keen's thinking... And his thoughts on the destruction of capital, amongst other things. How to advance in this world, you have to chuck away stuff. Is that the nub of his argument? And if so, so what? That's this week on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Oh, and I hope you had a good Christmas, by the way, and Happy New Year for next week. We are looking at a whole bunch of economists in this series of the Debunking Economics podcast. Uh, Go back, if you haven't heard us, talking about Irving Fisher or Richard Goodwin or Bill Phillips last week. Uh, This week, Joseph Schumpeter, an Austrian economist born in 1883. Uh, In fact, he was briefly the finance minister for Austria or Austria-Germany, it was in those days, wasn't it, in 1919, uh, before moving to the US. So an Austrian economist. Was he an Austrian economist, like from the classical Austrian school, Steve? This is one of the funny things is the Austrian, all Austrians uh, deny knowing about. So he's he's an Austrian. So no is the answer. Huh? No is the answer. So very briefly, just what is the Austrian school? In a sentence, what's typical of the Austrian school? Well, typical is, first of all, accepting the theory of value the neoclassicals have. So you've got utility maximizing individuals and profit maximizing firms. Uh, starting from a subjective theory of value. So value is the satisfaction you get out of consuming. It's it's not the cost of production, which is the classical school approach. Uh, and an, a rejection of, um, of mathematical modeling, uh, a belief you're not in equilibrium. Uh, even though you can work out an equilibrium, you know that the system will not be there. So non-equilibrium dynamics turns up a part of your... But, Thinking, but non-equilibrium not done in a mathematical way, just simply saying there'll be differences between the proper price and the actual price and the gap between the two gives you an arbitrage, a possibility of profits through arbitrage. So that's the major source of capitalist behavior. And a stylized and effectively wrong model of money, where money is effectively a commodity and the government, uh, money should be gold. Okay, this is that's the that's the Austrian because it, because it should be rare and limited yeah, in supply. Yeah, yeah, right. um, and and money should be a commodity, and all of those things Schumpeter rejected. Right. Okay, so he had to get out of there, didn't he? So did he? Did he? <laughs> did he get out well, of there? Austrian economists mainly went to America, so he went in the same direction. It was actually a, a family thing uh, uh, that led to his led to his move rather than uh, political. Right, and. So a chunk of his work was creative destruction. Well, he, see, he he starts off from saying that equilibrium is blither. Right. Okay. You're not going to be in an equilibrium situation. Uh, but he also he also admired the mathematics of Volra, and this is one intriguing thing about him. He's somebody who admired mathematics and couldn't do it himself. 
Um, so there's a bit of an inferiority complex with mathematical economists in his thinking. But he also tried to say, well, how can I start from a Walrasian foundation and get a non-equilibrium answer about the behaviour of capitalism. And that's where I found his work in incredibly rich and extremely important. So, do you know, a few weeks ago we were talking, weren't we, about how, you know, there's people who, who, don't, who can't do the maths mm. but come up with the ideas, and then there's people who can do the maths but actually can go into great depth drawing the wrong conclusions. Yeah. So he's, he's the non-mathematical part of that equation, is he? Yeah, and that's what I found fascinating because my first exposure to Schumpeter was back in 1973 at Sydney University when I was doing a course uh, called The Political Economy of Australian Capitalism given by Ted Wilwright, the brilliant uh, 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 well, – hard, hard to find a word to describe him, but uh, he was uh, just an encyclopedic knowledge of history of economic thought, a bit like Australia's Schumpeter in that sense, right. not mathematical as well. But he set us an essay where the essay was worth 30% of the course and you had to re review a book. So I chose to review Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy. And I thought it was a total wank. I can say wank on this program. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Um, uh, because he presumed at the end that capitalists You just would, can't do it, that's all. I can't yeah, do it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> we won't go into the medical <laughs> medical issues there as well. Um, so he, he ended up by saying capitalists would capitalism would fade out of the way because capitalists couldn't be bothered defending it. And I thought it was the greatest load of bunkum I'd ever read. So I, I, I like some parts of the cyclical arguments he gave, but I was very dismissive of him. And I couldn't see why people worried about Schumpeter all that much. And then in the late 90s, I had to teach a course on managerial economics at University of Western Sydney. And I thought, I'd better read Schumpeter because of all this creative destruction stuff and so on. And I read his book, The Theory of Economic Development. Now, he wrote that, I think, in 1907. It's uh, you know, well before the Great Depression, et cetera, et cetera. And I was stunned because normally when I read a totally verbal argument, I will find a point where they make a logical deduction which is wrong, mm -hmm. like Marx on the labor theory of value, okay? Um, so you, and I, I read the whole of the theory of economic development. It was only a, about a 200-page book. And I was stunned to find that looking at his logic and putting it in my mathematical way of thinking, he never made a mistake. So the That's remarkable. So the argument is that if you uh, invest in something uh, and that will be superseded at some point by by something else so that so so somebody like you invested in the production of Betamax tapes and then someone comes along and invents the CD player or the mm. the video disc player yeah. or whatever or DVDs uh, and you invest so therefore the money that you'd invested uh, in in that earlier technology is in effect destroyed because it's superseded by people who've invested in the next big thing. Yeah. And that is creative destruction. You've created something and you've destroyed the capital that had been invested in what's gone before. Yeah, and that's one of his major... Undeniably what happens. Yeah, yeah. And and, and then part of, making part of a model of cyclical outcomes in capitalism as well. But the remarkable thing about him was that... Well, many of the remarkable things. But he started off by saying, I'm accepting the Volrasian model of capitalism, the mathematical model of equilibrium and so on. He said, but in that system, and this is where he makes a logically correct deduction, in that system, profit must be zero. Yeah? Because what you've got is you have people paying for everything at its marginal cost, okay, selling at the 
marginal revenue, uh, in equilibrium in a neoclassical system is profit is zero. So where does investment come from? Okay. And he said, to answer this, you've got to break away from the thought of equilibrium. So profit comes out of the possibility of being able to undercut the current market. And you can only undercut the current market if your costs are lower. And that's a discontinuous change. So you can, like, again, I use my Elon which Musk. Will become, which would come from innovation. So innovation. Saying, so I'm, like, going, I'm going to do something yeah. that that is currently, yeah, I'm going to undercut the market by yeah. cutting costs through a more innovative technique. And so the, the, the easiest yeah. example for people to rationalize now is rockets and Musk, okay? Because before Musk, uh, say SpaceX perfected rockets that could where the booster would land after takeoff, every rocket flight, you threw away the entire technology. So consequently, your costs were enormous. It's like getting a plane ticket from America to the UK where the plane gets destroyed on landing. You know, Tickets would be slightly more expensive than they are right now. The fact the plane can fly back in the other direction and keep on doing it hundreds of times is why airfare is so cheap. So what Musk found was if we can master the technology of landing a rocket uh, rather than destroying it, then our cost will be an order of magnitude lower than the industry and we can make a profit. Right. Okay. So that was Schumpeter's logic. That's why you do innovation. And he gave six different reasons. I've forgotten the actual six, but you know, lower cost of production, uh, a lower a, 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 a finding a mineral source which is more bountiful than the average, uh, uh, combining two industries together in a way that people haven't thought of before, finding a new market to sell into. And he went through logically saying, if you can do this and you get a lower cost of production, uh, then you'll make a profit, which you will hang on to, so long as the rest of the industry hasn't quite caught up with you. Right, and so but innovation that would have to keep on happening. The other way, of course, would be actually getting more money out of out of something that exists. Like, for example, you've got copper wire coming into your home, uh, mm. and you know you could charge for phone calls, but all of a sudden you could start charging for internet access as well, yeah, even though yeah. it's for the same phone line. So, it's, yeah. you know, you're putting a bit of technology at the end and, get, and getting much much rewards. Mm. But you'd have to keep on doing that, wouldn't you? It's it, a continuous uh, process model. of innovation and change. And that's right. so he said you've got an equilibrium system. You'll make profit and out of equilibrium process. But once you've done it, that will become the new target for the equilibrium. So people will now copy your innovation and try to catch up with you. Uh, so he had this idea that you had to, to keep ahead, you had to continue innovating. So like, again, to use the rocket example at the moment, you've got to, you must use a two-stage rocket to get out of the gravity well of the Earth to put stuff in orbit or get it out of orbit. Uh, if you can, no Musk is saving just one stage. If you can save both two stages, you get another order of magnitude leap in your capacity to compete with your competitors and, again, another discontinuous source of profit. So that was the essential foundation of his logic. But the other thing which is absolutely vital is, again, the role of endogenously created money. And here, um, uh, again, this is the thing you can find in Fisher. You can find it in everybody we're talking about except uh, Goodwin for idiosyncratic reasons because he, he should have personally understood the role of money. But Schumpeter said the role of banking is to give money to people who innovators. The, the, the real role that banking should have mm. is to give people who've got innovative ideas but no money the money to turn those ideas into products. Yeah. And so well, I mean, because I, I, otherwise, if, I mean, on that zero profit argument, there's mm. absolutely no reason to invest in established industries because they're already Returning zero return. Yeah. yeah. So you're going you're gonna to lend money to a firm. You sh well, you, you lend money for working capital. That's an important 
productive reason to give money to existing enterprises in the real world. Uh, but in the theoretical world, there's no source of profit out of those, so why should you lend to them? Whereas the discontinuous change, that gives you the source of profit. So he said the real role of, of finance is to give money to entrepreneurs. And that's not what it does. No, it okay. absolutely doesn't. Okay. Gives it for um, for housing, speculation, or, or speculation. Yeah, we get yeah. speculative bubbles instead. But as he's, but he understood the role of endogenous creation of money, and he also gave himself like he had a model of cycles coming out of this. Uh, but often to make things, if you think about assumptions economists make, they often make assumptions to make it easier for them to reach the conclusion they wish to reach. Schumpeter did the opposite. He said, I want to explain where cycles come from uh, and therefore to have a, um, a new industry coming in. You've got to get resources from somewhere else. How are you going to hold all the resources? I'm going to assume that everything is already fully employed. You're at full employment. So to get those resources, you've got to attract them away from another industry. And you can only do that by getting money where you can pay them a higher amount of money than they're getting where they currently are. So you drag work, workers away from one industry to another and so on. So he started from full employment. Now, that's innovative. Okay, mm. that's, And then he said, well, what you'll get out of it is uh, you borrow the money. So the money comes as an endogenous creation of additional demand. And again, that's something that like mathematically I, I proved how that occurs in 2016 or 17, I think. Nobody had proved it beforehand, but he had the logical argument to say that there will be additional demand created by debt. Okay? So again, the neoclassicals are of loanable funds. So if you borrow money, they, from whoever you borrow can spend less, you can spend more, the two cancel out. No, Schumpeter is saying it's essential that banks create new money and that creates new spending power. And that's part of what gives you the booms and busts in the economy. But what happens if we run out of this ability to, to innovate? So it seems like you know a lot of the low-hanging fruit over the last hundred years, perhaps we've done it. And maybe there's well, I mean, just a huge no part of what we've done is innovating how to use more energy. Mm. Okay, and we're now realizing the limits of that on the planet we live on. So yes, we are finally striking limits to innovation in that sense. But at the same, and yet it seems to be he's saying, well, innovation is essential for the continuation of capitalism. Well, you, otherwise, you, otherwise there will be no profit. Well, I, th I think the whole idea that there's no profit in equilibrium is wrong because it's a neoclassical way of thinking about things. Profit is a flow. Mm. It's quite possible to imagine a world in which profits still occur, but no innovation takes place because you know, it's, it's a flow of revenue out of ex existing amount of money in the economy. It's p partly capitalists not going to do anything for free. What, what you can have is profit, but no accumulation. Okay? Now, it's, it's the accumulation that gives us the... Well, the profit is only of interest to the investors anyway, isn't it? Yeah, but the, 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 the profit is invested to those who own capital. So you can still have profit. The idea that profit is zero is a neoclassical vision of what profit is. Mm. Okay? Profit will not be zero in the real world. If you own a business, you're still going to be getting revenue out of it. You might say the rate of profit is the same as the rate of interest, and therefore you define, therefore, zero economic it does depend as well on what you yeah. define as profit doesn't it yeah I mean, and also like there's there's uncertainty and risk involved in running a shop there's not the same in the rate of interest there will be a gap all the time the whole idea you'll reach the two being equal is nonsense it's mm. a neoclassical way of but if thinking. you're running a shop 
yeah. uh, as a you know because I think that's a good that's a great example. And you're you're a sole trader running a shop, yeah. then the shop probably makes no profit because the money that you make from it is what you'd call your wage. Yeah, you get and a, so you get. You're zero still getting profit. a wage. You're still getting a return. Yeah, okay. we'll and it tends to be better than what the workers get. So mm. you know there'll still be profit, even in what neoclassical calls zero profit. There's still what the real world will call profit, and it's a healthier, you know, substantially larger amount of money you'll get in being a worker. Uh, but but the the vision of endogenous creation of money and the vision of cycles coming out of that that's again one of the strengths of Schumpeter. So you, this is something you've been through yourself when working in the telecommunications industry. I said once you have one firm making a breakthrough, that it encourages all the other firms to come in and also make that breakthrough later. Mm. So the the fact that one entrepreneur succeeds in getting money, and this is where you do get finance being created, venture capitalists and stuff like that, one gets it, makes it easy for the next one to get it. So what you get is an overinvestment. Yeah. Coming out of it, yeah, and booms and busts, which we've talked about numerous times over over recent weeks, haven't we? This mm, idea, yeah, everyone chasing after the same small market share and assuming that they're going to get a larger part of it than everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, more investment occurs and you get a boom and bust. Yeah. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, look, um, he had some interesting things about to say about economy as a science as well, which I want to investigate a little bit as well. Is it a science? economics uh, and uh, and whatever else you want to uh, talk about with Schumpeter I called him Schumpeter. I've been pronouncing him wrong how do you say it I'd say Schumpeter, Schumpeter. but I'm probably wrong I mean I used to say I've, I've made many mispronunciations in my career and that's probably another one <laughs> all right Joseph we can say Joe we can agree on Joseph Joseph Schumpeter Schumpeter uh, more on him in just a second on the debunking economics podcast if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we are looking at Joseph Schumpeter. Schumpeter, call it what you will. Uh, he's an economist. He was Austrian. He was, uh, and but not really. We've uh, we've covered that off today. Austrians don't uh, like him. And uh, yeah, that's right. He's been evicted from Austria. I wonder if he ever went back. Did he ever go back to live there, or was he uh, always overseas? I think always was in America. I'm not sure about that, but yeah. 
Right. And he's dead long gone, of course, isn't he? But he taught, see, the the people we're talking about had various intersections with each other. So Minsky was Schumpeter's PhD student. Right, okay. Goodwin was taught by Schumpeter, and Schumpeter also attended Goodwin's classes. Okay. Minsky was inspired by Fisher. Okay. Um, And and in some sense, I mean, I'm not quite sure how Phillips fits in there. I think Phillips is probably an independent factor, but they all were tied together in various ways. Right. And he, he, he said the fact that economics has become a bit of a chaotic state hmm. is because of the imperfect scientific training of economists. So he was another one. We've talked about this as well a, a, hmm. a, a bit in the past, about how uh, a lot of economists are given mathematical training, but hmm. they're not given scientific training. So you yeah. can do a lot of and there's a big lot difference of damage. between the two. There yeah. is a big difference, and if you can go create a lot of damage going down the mathematical road without that scientific thinking. At the same time, I mean, if this is uh, like with mathematics, you can treat economics as a form of mathematical syllogisms, where it's uh, you know put it in game theory context, and then you've got a major mathematics coming out of that. You make assumptions which are empirically invalidated and then build a model on the basis of those assumptions. So the classic one is the idea of rising marginal cost. That's mm. an essential element of neoclassical thinking. Empirically, it's garbage. Most real firms have constant or falling marginal cost, and marginal the actual price they set is way above marginal cost because marginal cost is below the average cost. If they priced at marginal cost, they'd go bankrupt. Uh, so there's the, you build a mathematical model based on a, not a simplifying assumption but a counterfactual assumption. Now, a physicist ultimately will not make an assumption based on a counterfactual, okay? They, their assumptions will be taking out, like ignoring the tiny elements to focus on the main thrust, whereas economists will ignore the main thrust and focus on the tiny elements because the, the tiny elements suit their way of thinking and mm-hmm. the main thrust doesn't. Yeah. That's where I think the gap between being a physicist and being a mathematician in the way you approach economics comes from. Well, yeah, and I think that, that was the point that Schumpeter was making, that there's so many different... I mean, there's so many economists out there who've all had, their own, and all had their own theories and you can pick and choose bits of those theories, perhaps, well, they're, they're, perhaps they're, without even understanding what the theory stood for for in total. You don't have to have that deep understanding and just take it at a, at, at a surface level. So Ricardo was associated with his, his arguments around free trade. So you could take some of that. His, his point was if you, if you gave the full Ricardo story to the man in the street, they wouldn't understand why and it, they wouldn't mm. be easy to grasp. And you can take that from any economist. Mm. You, can take, you can take, you know, like a grab Cherry bag picking. of ideas. Cherry yeah, take picking. those, those mm. ideas and uh, put it together in your theory because you, you've not got a deep understanding of actually what the rationing was, yeah. uh, rationale was behind. Yeah, look, for example, I mean, you were talking earlier saying he was uh, somebody who specialised in Ricardo, but in fact he had one of the best put-downs of Ricardo ever in Schumpeter's History of Economic uh, the, uh, Theory. Um, History of the Theory of I've forgotten the actual title. You're going to come back to it. Uh, but he actually said that Ricardo ignored all the complexities and just wanted to build a simple direct system. Mm. Um, so you criticise Ricardo for simplifying away the essential elements of capitalism. And so that's the unscientific nature of economics that it will, an unphysical nature of economics, which I think is probably the most important point. But he still thought economics could become a science. Um, I'm. <laughs> You're not so sure? I've, I, he- I, I think cap- economics will become a science after capitalism ceases to exist because of economics. <laughs> right. Okay. It'll destroy what it studies and then realise, whoops, 
and maybe we can build another theory of economics on the other side. But I, you know, I can't see it ever reaching the level of empirical realism that's an essential part of being a scientist. Well, it's that realism, isn't it? Because he did say, you know, that, te- that teachers teach students barren theories mm. that are never actually used, which he says is a bit like a fencing teacher teaching students uh, by showing them the instruments they can use, the weapons they can use, but never actually teaching them how, how to, to use, use the them. weapons. Yeah, actually, on that front, one of my favourite—I'm going to put this one into the dialogue. One of my favourite Schumpeter sayings, and like you've got people with some pretty big egos here, but he said he wanted to be the world's greatest economist, the world's greatest lover, and the world's greatest horseman. And then later in life, he said, "I never could understand horses." <laughs> Till he made love to one. <laughs> you mean one, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, a modest man. Modest obviously. man. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, uh, what else have we? What else can we take from him then? What? Uh, well, the, the creativity like of instability, the right. because the obsession neoclassicals have had with equilibrium uh, is as if equilibrium is desirable, and it, it sounds oh, let's be at rest. That sounds like a great idea. Well, that means you never ride a roller coaster. Uh, and he, he was it also saying, means there's no progress. No it? progress, no change. Yeah. So he said, like, a, an essential part of the creativity of capitalism is its instability. Mm. And if you didn't have a gap between where you are and where you could be or where you are and what's desirable, there wouldn't be the arbitrage profits, there wouldn't be the uh, capacity to innovate. So instability is an essential part of capitalism. And he has a paper called The Instability of Capitalism, which is appraising instability, not criticising it. Whereas neoclassicals, oh, my God, you've got to reach equilibrium. And he said, like, even with your equilibrium thinking, you can't explain profit, you can't explain investment. There's something wrong with thinking just in equilibrium terms. Uh, but at the same time, he worshipped mathematical logic. That's why he was ended up being a student of Goodwin, uh, to try to understand how to do the mathematics, which he never could quite grasp. Well, I've always found it very <clears throat> strange in politics that you have conservatives. And, the, you know, the very name conservative means you are, you're, you're conservative. You don't like change. And mm. yet, you know, mm. you also associate conservatives with making money, which mm. is all about, change. presumably, change. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's almost saying the same thing, isn't it? You don't get, you don't make money without without change. In yeah, fact, you've you, got to you have could, change to make money. I, I like to make huge profits. I mean, profits which are not just like the wages now that we we're talking about earlier, but a, a massive return from some innovative element. I'm like, I'm working on a, a software package that I hope will have that impact. Um, so you, you have to look at a, a way of doing something which is a, a radical improvement over what exists, and therefore you have a discontinuous change in the system. And those discontinuous changes which you can simulate in continuous time, I might, might add, but uh, they are an essential part of capitalism's creativity. And, like, for example, uh, you, you get neoclassicals obsessed with reducing wages, for example. You know, wages are too high. You're trying to get a neoclassical saying wages are too low would be quite a challenge. But when you look at where your innovation occurred historically, it, uh, the capitalist period began in Scotland with the innovation around spinning jennies, the whole textile industry, uh, water, water wheels, and then steam engines and so on. Uh, you didn't get the same innovation in France. When you look at the wages in France compared to the wages in in Scotland at the time, the wages were so much lower that it wouldn't have been profitable to invent the spinning jenny in France. Whereas in Scotland, when you invented the spinning jenny, you went from a, one worker being able to one, turn one spinning wheel to one worker turning six spinning wheels. And the increased physical productivity coming out of that was sufficient to mean you made a profit by selling the spinning jenny. By employing less people, though, and that's where a lot of innovations come from. So yeah. did, did, he, did he consider that? He did. But then, again, what you get is uh, you, that will cause like a 
de- decline in employment, but at the same time you have the endogenous creation of money, meaning you get a boom in our in. First of all, an industry in, and then related industries. So the fact that you suddenly get all the innovation taking place in uh, in Silicon Valley uh, means that suddenly you make huge profits from being a sushi chef. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, so so you get a spillover into other industries as well. Right. But does that so that that is that is like the you know the conservative argument that uh, when people are laid off, they are they're not laid off. Actually, they are they are free to explore other avenues mm-hmm. uh, so long as those other avenues exist. But if I mean, can that can that process? Because that means you've got you've got because that would mean then you'd have more productive economies, wouldn't it? Because you've got yeah. so you've 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 got one sector that has become uh, through innovation. Uh, has uh, is employing less people, and so it's realizing a, a greater return for the mm. investment that people have made in that in that industry. Mm. That's freed up all this labor, which then has to, as you say, there's more money created into the into the economy, so there's mm. more opportunity to employ people in other industries. Yeah. Then you, the natural assumption from all of that is that productivity has increased, and yet productivity isn't increasing. Well, productivity, and this is one reason I don't like the term labor productivity mm. because it's not labor that's being productive it's the machinery you've invented new machinery that uses more energy uh, produces more output uh, and you therefore get a higher ratio of output to labor but it's not because the workers have become more inventive it's the technology you know, a small group of people have invented enables a high level of energy throughput so a lot of what we call labor productivity is actually getting more energy productivity out of the machinery we yeah. use yeah with le- involving less people yeah, yeah. so uh, so don't we we reach a stage then as we become you know if his model for the for the future of the economy is mm. that it is always driven by innovation mm. and that innovation as you say is coming a lot largely from machinery being more effective in producing more output per mm. unit of energy input into it mm. uh, at the same time a lot of people are unemployed so they have to find new opportunities elsewhere which gives the opportunity for even more innovation you know yeah. with even more machines the constraint obviously is the amount of energy, then for the economy to grow while maintaining employment, I mean, that's a lot of innovation and a lot of growth in the economy. But it keeps on happening. Okay, but the the, the 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 fallback and the part that he didn't include in his thinking, and that's where Minsky. But will it keep on happening? That's my that, that thing. That's <clears> the point I was leading to. Or are we going to find that just unemployment is now going to continually? I mean, we've been saying this for decades. Of course, machines are going to take people's jobs. Ultimately, is the simplistic argument behind all of this. But is that is that going to? But it hasn't because there's always been something innovative that's employed those people. That comes but, on further further on, and another source of profit and, and more endogenous money creation and more growth and so on coming out of that. But like the limit we're facing. Is is the environmental one mm. okay? Uh, we so if if you could, you know, imagine. A, Did he a, consider energy at all? No, mm. no. I mean, this is. I mean, we should actually talk. This about This is your contribution. This is you're taking all these people on, and you're adding. This is your layer added to all of this, isn't it? Well, not sure. I mean, in, in terms of the, like people like Georgescu Rogan beat me to that one. Mm. Uh, like I'm not saying I'm the first person to bring energy by any means, but. Focusing on the essential role of energy, that's something which uh, I'm trying to, I'm the modern, one of the modern ones trying to think of Bob Ayers as well, a good friend of mine that I've actually worked these ideas out with. Uh, you know, Rogan beforehand, uh, you've got a, you know, a range of people who are looking at the role of energy. But in terms of putting it properly into economic theory, we haven't done that yet. Um, like my minor group has, but it's still got a long, long way to go. But a lot of these innovation we see is really about finding ways to use more energy uh, in a particular 
process. And, and that then is what encourages people to buy this because of the high amount of energy means more uh, effective value. I mean, we, you know, I've just come on a, a relatively fast train, relatively, <laughs> from London to here. Uh, if I go back 100 years and you said, oh, let's come out and do this stuff at my studio, sorry, it's going to take me one and a half days to get here. I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, so the energy consumption is a large part of the welfare increase we've seen. And the profit is actually coming out of exploiting the fact that we find free energy in the universe. None, nobody created, we didn't build, create the energy. We're mining it. And that's where the source of profit comes from. And that's the type which none of the people we're talking about in this series actually did. So, but in Champeta's case, where uh, he's talking about uh, you need to innovate in oh. this zero profit theoretical yeah. zero profit world, and it's and that innovation is, as you're saying, is largely technological. Therefore, there's less people being employed. Therefore, there's more people that need to find jobs, which means there needs to be more innovation. That's a, that's an upward spiral he's describing, isn't it? It's an upward spiral, but I mean the, the fact that we're going to just has to get faster and faster. Yeah, and that's what we've done. Okay. But the thing is, we're doing it on a finite planet, and that's our problem. Mm. Okay, If we were doing this in a universe where we could you know, take production offshore and you know, off-planet, uh, then you wouldn't face the limitations imposed by the biosphere, but that's where we are. Right. So we're now getting, and that's so we're going, well, it's really outside Schumpeter's We are, but, 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 but the reason why I'm going down this avenue is yeah. that given that there is that constraint, then Schumpeter's argument about how the economy grows is negated, isn't it? And it is, if, if it's reliance upon always being able to use larger and larger sources of energy and getting more productivity out of harnessing that energy more effectively, then yes, we are reaching an absolute limit there. We're going to go in reverse. Or can we innovate in using less energy? We can, but... Uh, and still have the economy grow. No, we can't. I mean, because I think that we've, we've gone well well past... We're, we're, it's already too big, Okay. Sustainability on the planet, we're well past the sustainable point, so we've got to go in reverse. And can you do that with endogenous money? I don't think you can. So, his, it... so his argument that, uh, you know, in theory, uh, the, the zero profit without innovation, then there's going to be no investment. Okay, there's going to be no... Well, you won't get private sector investment, okay? And you can still get government-financed investment, and I think that's where we're headed. Okay, to a centralised economy? Yeah, and that's why I say capitalism is going to be destroyed by economists. By ignoring that issue, they've pushed us into a dead end, which we now have to retreat out of if we're going to hang on to human civilization. And we can't retreat out using capitalist means because there won't be any profit to be made. There we are. We've, uh, we've used Champeda to uh, argue that case. <laughs> is, there any, is there anything else that he said before we finish off today? That, well, there's that... an enor enormous amount. I mean, if you had to think of in terms of people who studied what other economists wrote, Schumpeter ranks with Marx in terms of reading most of his rivals and history history of economic yeah, analysis. He had a massive collection of uh, of textbooks, didn't he? Yeah, he had like thousands of them. Yeah, mm. and 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 he's you know has a comprehensive knowledge of the of the roles of other economists in building where economic theory got to. So um, and so the only two economists I think it would be Marx and Schumpeter who had the level of Keynes didn't have a level of reading, for example, of either of those two. Mm. So his his awareness of the breadth of economics was enormous. And that level of scholarship, I think, is something we, we need uh, to understand where the hell we've got to. And neoclassicals have got such a narrow knowledge, even of their own discipline, that they're never going to give us that jump from myth to science.
What I don't get, and I've tried to read some of Schumpeter's stuff, actually easier than others, mm. but a lot of it is 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 heavy going. What I don't get with with economists is mm. very often the, the the principles are quite straightforward. The ex mm. and you're good at this. Obviously, that's why people listen to this podcast. Mm. I mean, sometimes you'll go off and uh, try and verbalise equations, which doesn't yeah, really yeah, work on yeah, a podcast yeah. at all. I'm seeing him in but, my head as I but, talk. But, yeah. but I mean, by and large, you know, um, even though he's sort of well read. You know, he 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 doesn't fit into that camp of people who explain stuff in a, in a simple, easy to understand way. And maybe that's because he thinks that if you do that, that's you know his point about science. Maybe it's dangerous that you explain stuff in too simplistic a fashion, and then you're allowing people to pick what they want to hear rather than you know. And then you just get into pub discussions about economics, which every, which every middle aged man does mm. without necessarily understanding the science that sits behind it. And woman. Yeah. Or woman. Or woman. <laughs> no, you see, women don't talk. Well, no, I think I'm fairly safe no, on that. No, we've got a few like Francis Coppola oh, and, okay. and, and yeah. Peter Foran and, For sure. and uh, you know, Kate Raworth and Stephanie Kelton. There's quite a few women. Yeah, there are. Yeah, yeah. no, but I'm, just, I'm, but I'm talking about the pub conversations where you get... The pub conversations. That, that, mm. that is, that's, you don't get women talking about politics, uh, talking about uh, economics I think it's time we went for lunch with this discussion <laughs> before <laughs> we get ourselves completely <laughs> losing half the audience who will be at the pub. Yeah, maybe. All right, okay, that's it then. We're finished with Champeda. Anything yeah. else to add? No, that's it. We can move well, on. No, we'll come back to him. Definitely needs to come back to him. Right. So it's, uh, I'm interested in next week. So it's Piero Straffa. And uh, so a lot of this is this uh, this argument that you've given time and time again about the shape of the supply curve, isn't it? Yeah, he was one of the first to point that out. The yeah. first, probably. Right. OK, we'll look at that next week on the Debunking Economics podcast. For now, okay. good talk, Steve. The Debunking Thanks. Economics podcast. 